As Earth Keepers, we hold wisdom about our planet within our bodies learned through lifetimes of experience on Earth and throughout the cosmos. I'm Amy Dempster, a shamanic practitioner and your host for the Earth Keepers podcast, and I'm on a journey to reconnect with my soul family, the other Earth Keepers, grid workers, portal tenders, land stewards, and nature lovers around the world. On this podcast, you won't find gurus or dogma, just a safe space where I share personal stories from my spiritual journey. Welcome back to the Earth Keepers podcast. I actually have a bunch of stories to share with you today. They may seem somewhat unrelated, but they all connect the thread of getting to know the other energies that inhabit the place that you live. And by that, I mean, it could literally be the house and the land that you live on, but it could also be the energy in the larger community that could be creating the underlying feel or behavior in a larger area. Either way, once you spend some time getting to know the place you live, so much more will make sense about it and maybe even about yourself or your own family history. As I mentioned in last week's episode, I've been taking you on a bit of a tour through the modules of my online course, the Earth Tenders Academy, through some of the stories from my life that have inspired or taught me about what I share in the course. The first three modules are focused on working with your own energy, which is what we've been talking about here on the podcast the past few weeks. Now, on the fourth module, we're starting to sense into our surroundings and get rooted into the places we live. We also start getting to know the spirits of the land, the actual energies that coexist with us wherever we live. So once you've worked to energetically clear your home of any extraneous energy that doesn't belong, you're left with what you might consider the native spirits of the area. Some you can see, like trees and plants and mountains and water, and some you may only be able to see in your mind's eye, or maybe even just sense or hear, because they're living in another dimension that's layered on top of our dimension. There are as many unique spirits as you can imagine. Just like humans, they come in so many different forms and all have their own personalities. Some were people once before, and some have never been human and they have some definite opinions about what's happening in the place they live, which also happens to be the place that you live. Honestly, I didn't always know about these spirits. This was news to me too. And I wasn't even sure if I believed it at first. So for our first story, we have to rewind to at least a decade ago when I was still living in California. You see, I've always been a gardener, And in the early days of Twitter, there was quite an active gardening community there. Over time, I met and became friends with a few other local gardeners my age, and we would complain amongst ourselves that garden clubs were clearly only for retired people. All of the club meetings in our community were on weekday mornings when we were working. And I mean, let's be honest, we could have started our own club, but I guess that never occurred to us. So After a couple of years of this complaining, one of us came across an event posting online for a group called the Garden Goddesses. It was a group of women in a nearby community who gathered to talk gardening once a month in the evening with potluck food and wine. 
this totally sounded like our kind of group. So three of us signed up to attend and never really paid attention to the subject matter or the speaker for that month. We were just excited to be going to a garden club meeting. On the day of the meeting, one of our friends wasn't able to attend. So it was just me and my friend Carrie who gathered up our potluck contribution and headed up the hill to the meeting after work that day. We arrived at a beautiful home in the woods with a view and a friendly and welcoming group of people. After everyone had arrived and chatted for a bit, we were all asked to gather outside in a circle and hold hands. The gentleman who was our speaker for the evening said we would begin with a short meditation and a cleansing and blessing of the land we were on. Carrie and I kind of eyeballed each other from across the circle. We were suddenly holding hands with strangers in the woods and doing some kind of ritual cleansing of the land that everyone seemed to understand but us. It suddenly occurred to me that we hadn't even told anyone where we were going that evening. So I was really hoping this wasn't going to get any weirder. I mean, at this point in my life, meditation wasn't actually new for me, but I certainly didn't know what it had to do with gardening. The ceremony lasted a few minutes. Nothing too strange happened, and then we all moved inside for the presentation. The speaker, horticulturalist Jeff Dawson, started the presentation with this challenge. What he was about to tell us could seem a bit unreal, but what if it was true, he said. He asked us to spend the evening just believing what he was saying might be true. Now my mind was really spinning. What exactly might be true? And what had we gotten ourselves into? I actually don't recall the details of his talk, but for the next hour, Jeff suggested that gardening is an act of co-creating with nature, that there were spirits that lived in every tree, plant, or blade of grass, and that if we really wanted to create special places, we needed to ask every day if the garden was willing to co-create with us. Um, what? Honestly, this was the most ridiculous thing we had ever heard at this point. But what if it was true? Jeff kept repeating that. Other ladies at the meeting were on the edge of their seats, hanging on to his every word and asking questions about crystal grids to protect their properties. That seemed even more outlandish to me. But what if it was true? The meeting came to a close and we slipped out just as the dancing began. Yet another thing we didn't expect to find at a garden club meeting. As we drove back down on the dark, winding road, Incredulous at the evening's discussion, a fox suddenly darted out in front of my car, and I had to stop to let it pass. A fox? That might have been the first time I actually saw a fox in person. There was certainly a message there, but I wasn't quite sure what that was. We both sat speechless as the fox crossed the road, and then we burst into laughter. What a perfect end to a mind bending evening. After that, we returned back to our normal lives, and decided that perhaps that wasn't the garden club we were looking for either. Although, I should totally start a club like that now. That is totally the kind of club that I need in my life. Anyhow, I didn't think much about Jeff, or nature spirits, or crystals for a few more years. Fast forward three years, and my friend Amr, who some of you may know, had opened a meditation studio just a few blocks from my office. Although I'd been meditating for a few years now, it hadn't been a consistent practice until then. At that point, her meditation studio was the perfect escape from my super stressful job. I'd eat lunch at my desk and then use my break time to walk down to the studio, 
meditate for 20 or 30 minutes, and then walk back to the office. Amr worked with crystals quite a bit in her healing work, and I started picking some out to work with or keep in my pocket. It was the first time I'd picked up a stone and noticed that I could feel its energy. And it was during this time that I was meditating daily that more and more intuitive messages started coming through to me. Funny how that happens. Once I received the message to move closer to pine trees and water, things moved fast. And it was only a matter of months before I'd gotten a job in Montana and we were packing to move. We had to sell our house and only had a few weeks to do it. I was concerned about whether or not we could pull it off and asked Amr if she had any suggestions. Sure, she said. You need a crystal grid. Yep, that's right, a crystal grid. And I suddenly had a flashback to that garden club meeting in the woods. I remembered how preposterous that idea had seemed only a couple of years before. But with the promise of a quick sale of our house, I suddenly found myself wandering around my yard with a diagram scribbled on a napkin, a shovel, and a handful of citrine. I texted photos to my friend who'd gone to the garden club meeting with me years earlier saying, who have I become? Well, as it turned out, the house did sell quickly. And in a matter of weeks, we were living in Montana. Shortly after that was when the trees started talking to me, which did seem really weird, but also somehow made sense. And it was then that I started seeking out more information about nature spirits. I mean, what if it was true? As the next two years passed, I started figuring out this whole communicating with nature thing, and it slowly became a much more normal part of my everyday life. Suddenly, the beautiful house in the Montana woods we'd been renting since we moved here was sold, and we had 30 days to find a new place. This was right at the end of December and the first part of January, and Finding a new rental that time of year in Montana is challenging, to say the least. I decided to stay calm and ask my guides to find us a new place. I wasn't going to worry about it. I knew they would steer us in the right direction. We ended up finding an old, quirky, and slightly haunted house on a large lot in town. Not exactly our dream home, but would certainly suit us until we could find something to buy. I knew we were there for a reason, but what was it? As spring began, I attended a local gardening workshop and noticed there was a presentation about gardening with the spirits of the land. I mean, what are the odds? I didn't think anyone in Montana was talking about this kind of thing, at least not publicly. And obviously, my guides wanted me to really pay attention this time. This was now the second gardening workshop on this otherwise unusual topic. I'm sure they were rolling their eyes at me by now. Anyhow, I went to this workshop which was standing room only, by the way. And it was taught by my now friend, Velvet, who some of you may remember if you watched my YouTube video with her about Cities of Light. During the workshop, she explained that each piece of property has one tree that is kind of in charge of everything happening on the property. I immediately knew what tree that was in our new place. She also explained that the earth spirits would share their wisdom with us if we asked. This was sounding a lot like what I heard at our garden club meeting so many years before. So I hung around after the workshop to ask her a few questions and tell her about my guides picking the place we were now living, and she suggested that I ask the spirits of the land why I was there. At this point, I was familiar with shamanic journeying and working with nature spirits in general, but I hadn't thought about consulting them specifically about anything other than the land itself. Although 
This did used to be a much more common occurrence, something our Earth-honoring ancestors certainly would have done. But over time, most people have forgotten about consulting these spirits for guidance or advice and have excluded them from important decisions that affect them. These spirits take their jobs very seriously, and if you cut down their tree without warning them or scrape all the vegetation from the land to build a new subdivision, they will likely be very confused and possibly trying to continue their work to protect the area, even though there's now an apartment building where a meadow once was. This can sometimes cause problems for the humans living or working in these disturbed areas. So I decided to do a journey to the town I was now living in to find out what it had to say. What I already knew is that the town was in a period of transition. For most of its recent history, it had been a blue-collar industrial town, depending on a lumber mill and an aluminum plant to employ many of its residents. In the decade before we moved there, the aluminum plant closed after it became clearer that it had been polluting the air and water in the area. In fact, it's now a Superfund site, and a multi-year cleanup has begun. A few years after the plant closed, the lumber mill closed all but one small section, citing a shortage of logs and laying off hundreds of people in a town with a population of only 4,000. So what was next for this town, and why was I called there? I did a shamanic journey to the town, and my guide at the time, a medicine man named Red Eagle, brought me to the same plateau overlooking a river that he always did. And suddenly, I understood where this was. It wasn't some random shamanic landscape. It was the town I was now living in, but before it was settled. How had I not noticed this before? The spirit of the land for this area then told me that for many decades, it had been exploited for its natural resources, and it was now time that they were to be appreciated. People living in this community were asking what it was going to be next. But the spirit of the town wanted what already is to be what the town is known for. The trees and the plants and the water want to be known as members of the community. At the time, I wasn't sure what all of that had to do with me and what I needed to do about it. But in the next two years living in this community, it slowly unfolded. The spirits of this place taught me how to work with the grids in the earth to help rebalance the energy and reconnect grids that had been damaged or disconnected. I also ended up encountering the spirit of the man who had founded the town while on walks in my neighborhood that took me right past the cemetery where he was buried. He had not crossed over and was still energetically holding on to the entire town. But he is another story for another day. I also realized in subsequent journeys that this isn't the first lifetime I've lived in this valley. So I suppose it's no surprise that I was called back. Ultimately, it was while living in this town and beginning to consult and work with these spirits that my guides channeled all of the details to me about how to begin to do healing work with the land and which groups of spirits should be consulted. And since then, I've come to understand that putting down roots where you live is more than just talking to the spirits who live there, even though that is a big piece. It is through understanding the places that we live that we come to know and understand ourselves. So if you want to get to know the spirits of the land where you live, first you have to get to know the land itself. When you better understand the landscape surrounding you, it's easier for the spirits to show or explain to you their experiences. Remember, most of them have been there for many generations and have seen all of the changes to the area. I suggest starting by getting a feel for the landscape itself. Start with a satellite image of your city, like on Google Maps and then slowly zoom out until you can see the major features in the landscape. 
Where is the water and where does it come from? This would have been important for people and animals living in the area for years before it was developed. What other significant features do you notice? Are there mountains, valleys, or canyons that catch your attention? Has development encroached on or significantly altered these natural places? Notice if any intuitive information about the landscape begins to pop into your head while zooming in and out on the map. Sometimes when I do this, I'll start hearing messages about where energy is restricted or disrupted, or it will just be very obvious when looking at the map. Look around on the map for any parks or preserved areas that have had less human interaction and might give you a better idea of what the native landscape looked like. Go visit these places and take a field guide of native plants with you. Or look for a native plant society in your area and see if they host guided hikes to learn more about the natural flora there. Don't take for granted that an area in your community that looks natural is actually in its native state. For instance, here in Montana, our mountains are covered with a predominance of Douglas fir trees. These trees are native to the area, but their planting in many areas is not. As these mountains have been logged over the past hundred or so years, a mixed variety of trees were replanted with Doug fir, a tree that grows fast and straight and can be harvested for lumber again when they reach maturity in a few decades. If you follow me on Instagram, you may have seen me share or talk about an area a few miles from my house called Kraus Basin. This is an area of old growth forest that was preserved when the area was logged and gives us the opportunity to see what these forests actually look like in their native state. There are a few Douglas fir trees sprinkled throughout the area, but the predominant trees are towering cedar and hemlock. The understory is full of Rocky Mountain maple and yews, with lower layers of devil's club, thimbleberry, false Solomon seal, ferns, and dozens of other native medicinal plants the indigenous people of this area would have been familiar with. Compare that to the five acres I live on that is covered with Douglas fir and tamarack trees, a few scraggly maples struggling to get enough sunlight, and a forest floor covered in Oregon grape. All native, but nowhere near the complex ecosystem that would have existed here before it was logged. And here's the other interesting thing I notice when I visit Kraus Basin. The spirit landscape is also very different. You can feel the quality of the energy shift when you reach this section of forest. It feels very wise and deep. I once asked why the spirits there were so different than many of the other places I visited, and they said, this is where the elders live. Ah, this made sense to me. When we first purchased the land we now live on, there was no spirit activity here at all. It was eerily quiet. I sat and asked to connect for close to six months before anyone peeked their head out to talk to me. They weren't hiding, per se. They just all had left. I mean, there were smaller nature spirits tending individual plants and trees and the like, but there were no big spirits. Nobody was doing much work here at all. The logging decades ago had sent them packing, and they weren't particularly interested in hanging out with any humans. In Kraus Basin, where they haven't been disturbed, they have continued to do their work in this dimension, and you can feel it. So take some time to learn about the native landscape where you live. And if you're lucky enough to have an area that's been preserved in its pre-settlement state, go visit and see how the energy feels compared to a park or other public place in your community. 
The other critical part of getting to know a place is to learn more about the people who are indigenous to the area where you now live. And this doesn't just apply to North America. No matter where you are in the world, at some point, there were people living where you live in a way that honored the earth. And they were removed, killed, or forced to assimilate with conquerors and settlers over thousands of years. I call the energies of these people the ancestor spirits, and you will meet them when you connect energetically with the land. We'll be talking in more depth about working with ancestors, both your own and those on the land, in a few weeks. But it's important to learn some of the stories of the people who lived in this area before you did. I'll add a link in the show notes to an interactive map where you can type in your address and learn which indigenous groups inhabited the area to begin your research. Know that in North America, especially, we are living on unceded land. That means that the original residents were dispossessed of their ancestral homes, as well as their hunting and fishing grounds by settlers who were sponsored and supported by the colonial system. And while there are no simple solutions to resolve this issue, I have found that when we start by just taking the time to educate ourselves about the history in our own communities and seek out the stories and history shared not only by the settlers, but also by the local tribes, you'll get a much clearer picture on what was actually happening during the years your area was being actively settled. Last year, while on a road trip to connect with my own ancestors in Idaho and Utah, I stayed the night in the town of Lava Hot Springs, Idaho, which I had no idea was being divinely orchestrated by the ancestors in the area. After enjoying the morning soaking in the healing hot waters, I noticed a large historical sign on the way back to my car and stopped to read it. It shared some history of the area and mentioned the spiritual importance of the springs to the native people of the area, and then said that after a certain year, the tribe stopped using it and it became a tourist destination. Okay, wait, that is a hard stop for me. After years of personal experience working with ancestor spirits on the land, and my basic understanding of U.S. history, I can almost certainly promise you that the Native people in this area didn't just decide to stop using a natural spring that was an integral part of their spiritual beliefs and annual ceremonies. I can guarantee you they were removed to a reservation and not allowed to return to this place of significance for them. But here is this sign in 2019, in the middle of a tourist community, right in front of what was clearly a sacred site, suggesting to anyone who read it that the indigenous people just didn't want it anymore. That kind of thing really makes me angry. So I walked back to my car and then drove through the small town to find a spot to eat lunch and decided to do some looking online to find the actual story of what happened in this community. I found a few bits of the story and then realized when I glanced out the window of the restaurant that the local historical museum was directly across the street from where I was eating. So after lunch, I walked across the street and paid $1.50 to visit the museum. Inside, just a few blocks from the giant historical sign, I found the most wonderful exhibit created by the Bannock and Shoshone tribes about their history in the area and the hot springs. I learned that they were removed to the Fort Hall Indian Reservation in 1868, after years of fighting with settlers who were straining the available food and water resources in the area. The U.S. Army had been ordered into the Utah Territory a decade before, and the conflict with the Shoshone had been ongoing, leading up to the Bear River Massacre, where Army forces killed more than 400 Shoshone men, women, and children. 
After this, the remaining bands agreed to relocate to the reservation, where the U.S. government agreed to supply the tribes with goods and supplies annually. Except that they didn't. Supplies often didn't arrive on time, or at all, and the land the tribes had been removed to was not adequate for farming. So in these years after relocating, many of the Shoshone Bannock people suffered from hunger and disease. Hoping to relieve the suffering of his people, Chief Pocatello led a group to a missionary farm in northern Utah, where wheat, corn, potatoes, and other vegetables were being grown. The Mormon missionaries agreed to share this food and farming knowledge with the tribe, but only if they converted to Mormonism. As tribal members began arriving in large numbers to request baptism and receive assistance, the other townsfolk began to complain and request their removal. Federal troops soon arrived and forced the Mormon converts to return back to Fort Hall. As I learned about this story and looked closer at the map, it all became clear to me. These were my Mormon ancestors. Maybe not specifically on this missionary farm, but certainly in the area. The ones I had spent the last few days connecting with and getting to know, I had found their original homestead in southern Idaho, not far from Fort Hall the homestead they would have been given by the U.S. government at no charge if they could live on it and farm it for five years. The homestead of which pieces were still owned by members of my extended family until a generation or two ago. Land that was taken from the Shoshone and Bannock tribes and given to them. And in my days connecting with them, I learned that they had some serious issues of their own to resolve before they could transition back to source energy that they wanted my assistance with. But I only realized after the fact that it was no accident that I booked a place to stay in Lava Hot Springs and walked by that sign and ate lunch right next to the historical museum. They wanted me to know this piece of our ancestral history as well. In my experience doing healing work with the land where there's been significant conflict between native tribes and settlers, those on the other side of the veil have often reconciled. But they wish to have that energy grounded into reality on this earth plane which is why they ask for our assistance with these healing ceremonies, to lift some of this painful energy out of the soil and transmute it, so that their ancestors on both sides of the conflict can begin to find ways to repair the damage that was done. When you dig into this energetic work with the land, the spirits of those people will step forward and begin to show you their personal experiences. You will feel their pain and their fear. And sometimes you will find that your apologies and offerings on behalf of those who have lived in this place before you are needed, whether you're related to them or not. But regardless of what you find, you will begin to see the people there are not just as they have been memorialized in history books, but as complex human beings making complicated choices in their lives, just as we are today. That's what I mean when I say that through understanding the land and the stories it holds, we can better understand ourselves. So I encourage you to take some time to learn the settlement stories in the area that you live in, even if it's not where your ancestors live. Specifically seek out sources from the Native people who most likely still live there today. Find a museum or website or books that will help you to deepen your understanding. And if you're really feeling called to become deeply rooted where you live, I would love to welcome you to the Earth Tenders Academy, where we spend even more time getting to know the places we live. In this nine-module online course, I walk you step-by-step step through working with your own energy, working with the spirits of the land where you live, and then show you how to do healing work with the land. As we walk through this period of transition in this moment of our own history, 
we have the unique opportunity to help unlock and release generations of trauma held by the land that is still affecting us today. Our ancestors are here to assist us, just as mine guided me through their history, so we don't have to continue reliving our collective trauma from the past. There's a link in the show notes if you'd like to learn more. Okay, that's it for this week's episode. I really hope to see you right back here next week. Thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to the Earth Keepers podcast. I'm so honored to share this journey with you. I would love it if you join me and other Earth Keepers from around the world in the Following Hawks Earth Keepers community on Facebook. To find the show notes, additional resources, or learn more about working with me, go to earthkeeperspodcast.com. Until next time, I'll see you in the multiverse.